Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church Podcast. This is our Lord's Day Sermon. We pray that as we declare the Word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's Word, and may the Lord be with you. Well, today we're going to be closing out the Gospel of John. We've been in this gospel now. I think this is the 75th sermon so far in this gospel. We're in chapter 11. We began maybe two and a half years ago in December of 2019 on this journey. And we've been following an organizational structure to the gospel of John where we've been doing it chronologically. Now, of course, we've been going verse by verse through the text. That's expositional preaching. But but we've been noticing that John, out of all the gospels, is the most chronological. He tells us of Jesus's beginning of his ministry. He tells us of the end of his ministry. And he tells us um, of the middle and all of those parts in between. And we know that because John's gospel is the only gospel that organizes his material based off of the Passovers. And there's four Passovers in the gospel of John, which kind of adds up to about 3.5 years. There's the Passover in John 2, which means that Jesus now is entering into public ministry. That's sort of day one of his public ministry. There's a Passover in John 5, which is the second Passover, and it ends his first year of ministry. There's a Passover in John 7, which brings the second full year of ministry to completion. And then the final Passover where Jesus dies ends his third year of ministry. So if you take John 1 and John 2, which is four to six months, and you tack it onto the three-year ministry that he had, he had a three and a half year ministry, and we get that from John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling more of a thematic picture of the of, of Jesus, which is what's one way to tell a story. You take all the things that you know about a person and you organize the material in a thematic way to emphasize a theological point. John, what we've noticed, is organizing his material in a in a chronological way. He's been organizing his material in a way that emphasizes the timing of things. And that's why many times he will quote Jesus as saying, my hour has not yet come. Now, that doesn't mean John is not theological. In fact, John may be the most theological gospel with more Old Testament themes and and stuff than, than maybe any of the other books of the Bible. Like John is just a rich reservoir of theological truth. But I didn't see a theological structuring to the book to where I would say that the book is organized based off of theology because it seems so clear that it's organized based off of chronology even though there's theological concepts in it. But this week I saw another way to organize the material. Another way that the gospel of John is trying to get across this information that he's been sharing with us. And I think that you will, and I don't want to speak too highly here, but I think you'll be blown away by it. I think when you see what the Lord allowed me to see in this passage this week, when you see it, I think it will blow you away. Because the gospel is not just organized in a chronological way. It is. John 11, he has two weeks left to live. John 12, he has one week left to live. We know that because the book is chronological. But it's also got a theological structure to it where John is trying to teach us something about the Messiah. The book even says that's its purpose in John 20, 31. He says, these things have been written, meaning that not everything has been written. Some things have been written 
that are trying to accomplish a purpose. And what is that purpose? So that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, that means Messiah, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. John wants us to believe in the messianic messiahship of Jesus. And if we believe in those things, if we believe who he said he is, then we will have life in his name. We've talked about this many times in this gospel that John is not trying to get us to have academic or mental assent to a to a subset of data. He's not just saying, hey, believe in Jesus and then everything will, will be made whole. He, James even says the demons in hell believe and they shudder. It's not just easy believism. It's not just mental assent. It's not just, yeah, I agree with what the pastor said. No, John is organizing his book to say, do you believe that he is the Messiah? And that will give you life in his name. Now, Today, we're going to look at this theological thematic division that John has structured his book in. And what we're going to see is truly astounding. We're going to see that in this way of organizing his material, that John is going to show us that Jesus is not just the suffering servant who dies, but he's our prophet, and he's our priest, and he's our king. That is what we're going to see today. And to do that, we're going to have to go back into the Old Testament scriptures in order to see it. Because John, out of all of the gospel writers and out of all of the New Testament writers, is the most saturated when it comes to the Old Testament. The, the most Old Testament book in all, of the Old, in all of the New Testament is Revelation, which is a book written by John. There's no book in the New Testament canon that has as many allusions to and illustrations from and just point points that are pointing back to the Old Testament as the book of Revelation, John's gospel is certainly in the upper echelons right there with Hebrews and some other books. Like John's writing style is, I want to look back at the Old Testament scriptures so that I can show you the new covenant realities. And if we're going to understand how Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, if we're going to understand that being our prophet, priest, and king is what Messiah actually means, then we got to go back into the Old Testament. And the way that John uses the Old Testament is astounding to me. It's absolutely astounding. In the Old Testament, God instituted three offices that required anointing. Now, there were different offices in the nation. You could have been in David's court or you could have been, you know, a Levitical priest or you could have done some duty in the kingdom that didn't require you to be anointed. But there were three offices that actually required that you be anointed for them and those were the prophet, the priest, and the king. That word anointing in the Hebrew is a Hebrew word called Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed one. It means the one who has been anointed for the role. So therefore, in the Old Testament, there's actually many people who are called Mashiach. And what's so fascinating, if you haven't already picked it up, that word sounds a lot like an English word that we have currently today, which is Messiah. So the word for anointed one in Hebrew is where we get our English word Messiah, which tells me that to be a Messiah, you need to be an anointed one. And that means that you must be anointed to do something. And if you can get that and you realize that 
there's only three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed for a special purpose, then Messiah, the definition of the term, is prophet, priest, and king. So if we want to know Jesus as Messiah, we need to know Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And John is going to teach us. Now, again, we're going to go into the Old Testament just for a second because I want to show you how these offices were established. If you remember, the nation of Israel was established first when God wrestled with a man named Jacob. If you remember in the Old Testament, he wrestled with Jacob and Jacob said, I won't let you go until you give me a blessing. God threw his hip out of socket, which, you know, Jacob was old, so that makes sense. I'm just kidding. And at the end of that sort of moment, God changes his name from Jacob, the surplanter, the trickster, the, the guy who deceives people to Israel, the man who wrestles with God. Israel was founded in a wrestling match, which being from the South, that actually, actually sounds pretty cool. <laughs> After that, Jacob is a different man, totally different man. He and his family, his 12 sons, become the 12 tribes of this new nation. And then with the 70 grandkids that he has, that sort of becomes a picture of what the eldership community is going to look like. And that family of 70 during a famine go down to the land of Egypt and they sojourn there for 400 years, which God had already told Abraham previously that was going to happen. Now, there's census data in the Torah that says that about 600,000 men of fighting age came out of the land of Egypt. So that means by, you know, you just talk about um, men who probably had wives and probably had a few kids and then older men, older women who weren't eligible to fight. I mean, you're talking probably like 2.4 million people, somewhere around 2.4, 2.5 million people. There's a lot of scholars today that will actually object to that point that there was that many people who came out of the land of Egypt. But scholars also object to Jesus rising from the dead. So I don't put my stock in what they say. I put my stock in what the Bible says. And they left Egypt through many miracles that God worked through this through this Midian shepherd called Moses. This 2.4 million people crossed through the Red Sea. They came out of the Red Sea and into the wilderness. They marched in the wilderness led by the, the fiery presence of God by, by night and the smoke cloud, theophanic presence of God by day. And eventually they come to the mountain of God where Moses goes up on top of the mountain to get the law of God because Israel needed structure. They came out of Egypt with no centralized government, no religious system, no formal leadership. Moses is not going to live forever. They need something that's going to bind them together. That's going to help them be a people in relationship with God. There is sinful people right now with no ability to live in the presence of a thrice holy God, so they need structure. They need something, and God begins by giving them a religious system to help them. And he does that through, through laws like the Ten Commandments. We get that early in the book of Exodus. And then he does that through establishing a priesthood, also in Exodus, through a sacrificial system, Leviticus, through feast and through other things. That's also Leviticus. We get this sort of religious system that is going to help the people live with God. God graciously says that he's going to come down and dwell in a tent tabernacle. And he's going to give the people priests to represent them. He's going to give them sacrifices to sanctify them. All of that is going to be a type and a shadow that looks forward to Jesus Christ. 
from the tabernacle to the sacrifices to the feast to the priest, all of it. Now, we know that the priests were installed as mediators between God and man. There was Levitical priests who were who were there to sort of um, set up the temple, tear down the temple, move the temple, park the temple, uh, take care of the furniture in the temple. They, they were more like deacons in the Old Testament time period that, that they were just taking care of the actual building, taking care of the needs of the people like deacons do today. But there's also the line of the priest that came from directly from the line of Aaron. To be a Levitical priest, you just need to be from the tribe of Levi, but to be in a high priest, an Aaronic priest, you had to be from the line of Aaron. And out of all the priests, there was one who was called the high priest. The high priest is the one who served the people in the most significant and set apart way. He's the one who would go into the Holy of Holies once per year to offer the day of atonement sacrifice for the people. He's the one who would be intimately involved in the sacrifices that would go into the temple. He was the one who wore the the most elaborate clothing with with the jewels and the gemstones and the the shoulder pads, which had the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on on this sort of ephod-like structure. Like this man was set apart to do an astounding mediatorial work to bear his brothers into the presence of God. It was a dangerous role. It was a sacred and holy role. And for that, the priest had to be anointed. Exodus 28 tells us about this. Right after intimate detail is shared about the priest clothing, which you can read about, it's fascinating. It looks like he's almost armoring up to go into battle through this clothing. There's, there's three layers of clothing that he had to wear in order to go into the Holy of Holies. Again, it's interesting reading if you'd like to read it's Exodus 28. But notice how they're anointed. This is what it says in Exodus 28, 41. God says, you shall put them on Aaron. That's the clothing. And on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them. First time this has happened in the Bible. You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. This is the first time in the Bible that that a particular job is being established that you have to be ordained for, anointed for, consecrated for, and it's the office of high priest. In the Hebrew, this word is Mashiach. This word is Messiah. So that Aaron and his sons were Messiahed. They were anointed. And I'm not talking about that they're the anointed one. And I'm not talking about that they are the Messiah, just like not all bowl games are the Super Bowl. In that sense, the the there is is an exclusive the. It's saying that that some games are called bowl games, but there's only one the Super Bowl, right? Well, in the same way, there's only one true Messiah, the Messiah. But there's a lot of little M Messiahs in the Old Testament. There's a lot of people who are anointed, for a particular task. And Aaron and his sons after him were anointed as high priest. Now, again, this foreshadows the Messiah. This this one 
singular role of high priest is going to foreshadow what Jesus is going to do for us and where he's going to bear us into the presence of God. He's going to, he's going to offer sacrifice so that we can be saved, so that we can be brought into relationship with God. He's going to mediate a new covenant. Like all of this is about Jesus. This Aaron, his sons, all of it is showcasing who Jesus is going to be as high priest. All of it is foreshadowing the true Messiah. But we have to recognize that that in a small way, these men were anointed for a special role. The first role, in fact, that is anointed. That's the first. The second anointed role is the role of kings. But, you know, it's funny how we get there, right? Because you've got a priesthood, by the time you get to the book of Leviticus, you've got a high priesthood that's functioning. And then you've got God as king. You've got Israel as a theocracy. They don't need a centralized government, although the book of Deuteronomy does give them laws because they can't live without them. So he gives them all kinds of laws to to have a civil government with God as their king. And they move into the land of Israel. They invade it. God tells them to go into it, to capture it, to take it, to set up shop there. God will be their king. The high priest will mediate between them and God. That was their system of government. But as we know... They didn't do that. They didn't honor God. God set up this beautiful relationship where I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be yours and it's going to be your descendants land forever. And I'm going to give you a wonderful relationship with me. I'm going to welcome you like Adam back into the garden. You're going to be in the the land flowing with milk and honey. That's sort of a picture of the Garden of Eden. I'm going to do that for you. And I'm going to be in relationship with you. And I'm going to give you sacrifices to sanctify you. And I'm going to be a high priest to mediate for you. And I'm going to do all of this for you. And even though he did all of that, they still rebelled against him. After Joshua dies in the book of Judges, things go crazy. The people spread out to their tribal lands, the People of Naphtali go to the land of Naphtali. The people of Dan go to the tribal allotted portion that's dedicated to Dan. And and then you've got Manasseh and you've got Joseph. I mean, uh, not Joseph, uh, Manasseh, Ephraim. You've got uh, Benjamin and Judah. All of them go to their specific tribal allotments and they lose contact with the high priest. And they lose contact with God. And they begin doing what is right in their own eyes. That's what the book of Judges is all about. They lose connection to their mediatorial representative, the high priest. And then they lose connection ultimately to their God. And they begin doing what's right in their own eyes. So that when you read the book of Judges, it is this dark, ugly book where these people are doing disgusting things. It mirrors the kind of filth and depravity that we're seeing today in our society where these people don't know their left from their right hand. And they scream and wail over all kinds of awful sin. The book of Judges is sort of washing machine of idolatry where where it's got different cycles. You know how your washing machine goes through different cycles? That's what the book of Judges is. They get prideful and they say, look at all that we have. Look at what we did for ourselves, not remembering that it was God who gave them this land. And then they fall into pride. And then after pride, they bow the knee to idols. And then after that, God allows them to be, to be um, enslaved by other nations. And then they cry out to God and they say, oh my, you know, Lord, please forgive us. Look at what we've done. And then God will send them a judge who will help lead them out of slavery. He'll lead them away from the Philistines and the Canaanites. And then the people will, will get comfortable again and their praise will grow cold again. And then they'll fall right back into the same pride, same idolatry, same everything else. And they'll fall away 
back into enslavement, back into idolatry. The cycle goes on and on and on in the book of Judges. Until eventually you get to the final judge, who is Samuel. He's the one who wrote the book of 1 Samuel. He dies. Maybe one of his, his students or, or one of the, the men who came after him finished the record in 2 Samuel. But this man, Samuel, was the final judge. And the people come to him one day and they say, we don't want God to be our king anymore. We want a king like all the rest of the nations. And Samuel is distraught. He's thinking to himself, how could you reject God as your king? How could you do that? This is the same people who let the Ark of the Covenant lay rusting out in the middle of the open field for years under the reign of Saul. It was not until David came and brought it back to the city of Jerusalem. So these people did not worship God. And now they wanted to kick him off his throne. Now, this is an important, important role. This is an important role for the people of Israel because God was going to raise up his son to come from this line. So he needed someone to lead the nation that was going to do it with holiness and reverence and would eventually get down to the place where Jesus would be born. So he chooses to allow Samuel to anoint a king. And then the king is anointed. Now, the people choose the man named Saul. God allows this, and he Mashiach Saul. He tells Samuel to anoint Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 17, Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because... Of their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, the one who should rule over my people, and he anointed him. So Samuel anoints this man named Saul with oil. He anoints him for the second anointed Mashiach office of Israel, which is the king. Now, as we know, Saul did not follow the Lord. He turned his back on the Lord, and then eventually God says to Samuel, honestly, just about five chapters later, six chapters later, to go and anoint David, who's going to be the true king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16, 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So here we have the second anointing of Israel, where all legitimate kings are going to be anointed and they're going to come from the line of David. They're going to be anointed just like the high priest, and they were going to serve God in a very specific role, reigning and ruling over the people of God. Again, they're like the priest in the fact that they're little M Messiahs. David is called an anointed one in the Psalms and in other places. So David is sort of this little M Messiah participating in the messianic ministry, foreshadowing what the true messianic king is going to look like, who is far greater and better than David. And when you, what you have here is that at the inauguration of David, you have Israel moving from a one office nation to a two office nation before they were a priestly theocracy. Now they're a priestly monarchy. They have priests that represent them between them and God, and they have a king that represents them on the throne in Jerusalem. 
And over the course of their history, this goes well at times, and then at other times it goes very, very poorly. At the end of David's life, he anoints Solomon, his son, to be king. He doesn't do it. He tells the the priest Zadok to do it for him, and they anoint Solomon, and then they put Solomon on a donkey, and they ride Solomon into the city of Jerusalem to, to the cheers of the people, and Solomon sits on the throne of David. And what's interesting about Solomon is that Solomon really is a foreshadowing of Christ. David is the one who prepared the nation for Solomon, who came in and built the temple where fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices, which never happened under David's leadership. And then you have the nations who are hearing about the wonderful workings of God coming to the city of Jerusalem. They're paying tribute to Solomon. They're making Israel wealthy. They're, Solomon is, is, in, is being enamored by the world because he represents the one true God. This is sort of a picture of who Jesus is. The prophet, John the Baptist, prepares the people for Jesus, prepares all the, the material for Jesus. Jesus comes and establishes the new temple of his own body, and now the nations of the world are streaming to him. That's why in a lot of ways, Solomon's ministry is a picture of Christ and this anointed role, this anointed office is a picture of Jesus. But we know like everything in the Old Testament, these pictures were very, very limited. The kings did not obey God. We see this even in Solomon's life. Solomon in the beginning of his life is is seeing this unbelievable blessing that God is giving him. Wisest man in the world who's who's serving God in a way that no one has ever served God before, who's seeing the blessings of God in a way that no one has ever seen the blessings of God fall upon a king like they did in the early reign of Solomon. And then then he starts packing his palace full of concubines. And then he starts making all of these wives from political alliances. And then we see him bowing down and worshiping their pagan gods, even building high places for their pagan gods. We see Solomon acting out the same kind of idolatry that the people have. By the end of Solomon's life, we see him as sort of a failure. And then that sin nature transfers to his son and to his offspring. Solomon, the wisest man in all of the Bible, has the most foolish and stupid son who trades in everything that Solomon had built for pride. He alienates the 10 tribes of the North and they they say, I'm done with you and they leave. You've got Rehoboam now who's managing the two tribes of the South, which are Benjamin and Judah. And then you've got Jeroboam who was an officer in his army who defects from him and who takes the 10 tribes with him and establishes an entirely new nation. So now, in the history of the Old Testament, you have two nations. The nation of Israel, which is the the apostate, defected country that goes away and totally abandons God, never worships God, never turns to God, and God eventually entirely divorces them. And then you've got Judah in the south, who has an up and down sort of roller coaster experience. Sometimes they worship God, sometimes they don't. And eventually, when we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is going to abandon them. And it happens in this passage that we're in today. Because the depravity was so wicked in the Old Testament era, 60 years after the Northern tribes defect and they go to be their own nation, they're so bad, so idolatrous, so disgusting in their depravity that God anoints a third office, the office of prophet. 
the one who would go and who would call the wicked nation to repent. And that really is the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament is to call the people to repent. Whenever you see a prophet in the Bible, there's really two reasons that he's there. He's there to call the people to repentance and to warn them that God's judgment is coming. Whenever you read books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Habakkuk, Amos, Obadiah, Hosea, Zechariah, Zephaniah, and all of the rest, when you read those books, you're reading about an anointed man who's been mashiach anointed for a specific role, who's called to preach repentance to the nation because God is getting ready to send awful judgment upon the people. That is why every single prophetic book exists, so that when you get to this place in the Bible— from the reign of Ahab and Jezebel all the way until the end, the book of Malachi, Israel now is living under a three-office state. And that begins with Elijah, the first prophet. Elijah is a man who worked miracles. He preached God's word and he called the nation to repentance. And all of that transferred to his, to his predecessor, or to his successor, excuse me, Elisha who also did miracles and preached God's word and called the people to repentance and warned them of the judgment to come. He just did it twice as much. He had a double portion of the ministry. That ministry of Elijah and Elisha is prototypical of the prophetic era. Just like David and Solomon is prototypical of who the kings should be, Elijah and Elisha is prototypical of who the prophets should be. And isn't it fascinating that in every era, the prophet, the priest, and the kingly era, God gives two people, two witnesses to be their representative. He gives Moses and Joshua as the era of the priest. He gives David and Solomon during the era of the kings. And he gives Elijah and Elisha during the era of the prophets. These six men show us more about Jesus Christ and his role as Messiah than anyone else in scripture. Which is why if we want to know who Jesus is, as prophet, priest, and king, we should probably... We should probably look to these men and see how Christ is a perfect type. They are types of who he is in his perfection. So when we get to this point, Israel is a three-state nation. By the middle of the hundreds, they have anointed high priests, they have anointed kings, and they have anointed prophets who are, come, who are to come and call them to repentance. All of these are little M messiahs. Now, you may be wondering, why did I share all of this? How does this relate to the gospel of John? Why did I go through all of this information on prophet, priest, and king? And it's because I want you to know what Messiah is. That's the first reason. This office that was instituted by God where Jesus was going to come and be the perfect fulfillment of that role. He's going to be the one true Messiah. Well, we need to understand what that means. And that is the, the anointed priest, king, and prophet who is set apart for the work of God, who is faithful to the calling from God to serve and rescue the people of God. That is what Messiah means in its full. Now, all of these Old Testament men were types of that. They None of them held multiple offices. So that means that they were limited. You know, David was a king, but he wasn't a priest. Aaron was a priest, but he wasn't a prophet. All of them, in fact, were incredibly limited in the fact that none of them held multiple offices. There's not a single man that I can think of that held more than one office. And of the ones who held that office, which are that's also a very limited number, none of them were perfect. 
David was an adulterer and a murderer. Aaron was a people pleaser, crowd pleaser who made the golden calf. Elijah was a man who, as soon as Jezebel started barking a little bit too loudly, he went and hid under a broom tree. None of the ones who were in the Old Testament anointed to serve God in that way lived up to the office. So when we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus as perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king, holding all three roles at the exact same time, we are to look at that and see the beauty and majesty of Christ. He's the one which all of the Old Testament prophet, priest, and kings pointed to. He's the one who now inhabits those roles perfectly, eternally, for the benefit and for the good of his church. He is the prophet who's called us to repentance and warns us of the coming judgment so that we can come into the presence of God. He's the true king who's been enthroned to reign forever in a kingdom without end so that we've been brought in as citizens. He's the true high priest who enters into the holy place and offers the only sacrifice that would do to mediate a new covenant between us and God. If Jesus is not always prophet, priest, and king, then we have no hope. That's the first reason why I shared this with you is so you would understand the theology of what Messiah means. So that when John says that I want you to believe that he's the Christ, Greek word for Messiah, and then by believing that you'll have life in his name, I want you to have life in his name. And if you don't believe that he's your prophet, your priest, and your king, then you won't have life. That's the first reason. The second reason is I really believe that John has organized his gospel intentionally to highlight this. Intentionally. He's not only organizes his gospel according to the Passovers, but he's also organizing it thematically to show that Christ really is our true prophet, priest, and king. And let me, I just want to show you this for a second. We're going to highlight it now. We'll dig into it a little bit more in just a second. But the first 11 chapters of John use prophetic words. Jesus is acting in prophetic ways. What I'm trying to say is that the first 11 chapters of John's gospel are intentionally dedicated to showcasing Jesus as prophet and that they are intentionally dedicated to highlighting that he is the true Elisha that is to come, that Jesus is the final prophet that's going to bring judgment upon the people. He's the one who's going to warn them to repent before the awful day of judgment comes. And like the prophets of old, they're going to reject him and they're going to seek to kill him. I am saying that the first 11 chapters of John is intentionally the story of Jesus as prophet. And then after John 11, when Jesus turns his back on Judah, which we will see in a moment, and he leaves them and he, and he abandons them and he goes to this Old Testament town called Ephraim. The next time we see Jesus in John 12, he's riding into the city as king. So John 12 is the second thematic section of the book of John, which is Jesus as true king. If he's the anointed one, he has to be true prophet. That's John 1 through 11. He also has to be true king. That's John 12. But he also has to be priest. And what we will see is in chapter 13 of the gospel of John, things shift dramatically. The verbs that are being used are priestly verbs. The way that Jesus is acting is a priestly action. 
He is doing priestly things. He is giving them new laws from an elevated position in the upper room, just like Moses on Mount Sinai. He's praying a high priestly prayer, just like Aaron in the Old Testament. He is doing priestly things. So what I'm telling you is, is that the verbs, all the way down to the grammar of John's gospel, have three sections. One is prophetic, one is kingly, one is priestly. John is telling the story of Jesus as high priest and king and prophet. He is showcasing to us that Christ has fulfilled all three offices, and that is the story of him as Messiah. That's why knowing who Messiah is will make sure that you have life in his name. That's why knowing that he's prophet, priest, and king is so incredibly important. John would organize his material, in fact, to highlight it, which is now what I want us to do today. That's our introduction, by the way. Now we're, now we're going to get to the sermon. Today, I want us to see how John 11, the chapter and verse that we're in today, is the end of Jesus's prophetic ministry. It's over. When we close out John 11, his prophetic ministry is over. The second thing that I want us to see is why that matters. Why does it matter that he closes out his prophetic ministry? Why does it matter that he's king and priest? That's what I want us to to end with, because I want us to end with the gospel of who Jesus is so that we can appreciate that and so that we can love him even more ardently with that. If we walk out of here today with just academic information on prophet, priest, and king, then I failed. What I want, what I've been praying for you is that as you hear these facts about Christ today, some of them you will have heard for the first time today. When you hear them, I don't want you to tuck them away in your brain so that you can be smarter than other people. I want you to let them trickle down into your heart. I want you to leave here with a song on your lips, worshiping Christ, because now you understand him in a better way. You understand him as prophet and as priest and as king. And I want that to have real meaning in your life. I want you to know what it means that he's your priest. I want you to know what it means that he's your king. I want you to know what it means that he's the prophet. And I want that to have tangible effect in your life. So with that, let us turn to John eleven fifty four through 57 as we examine these truths together. This is what the text says. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So when they were seeking for Jesus, they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you are our prophet, our priest, and our king. Lord, we thank you that John's gospel is organized in such a way that would highlight this for us today. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who reveals the truths from the scriptures. Lord, I pray today that as your people, that we would understand your truth. Lord, I pray that we would understand the roles that you have played in our life. 
Lord, I pray that, that knowing these things would increase our joy, would cause us to worship, and cause us to rest in our salvation that you have provided. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We come to a set of passages today in verses 54 through 57 where Jesus is now ending his prophetic ministry. He's no longer willing to walk publicly among the Jews. That ministry is over. He's no longer willing to walk among them, no longer willing to speak among them. The time for words and sermons and parables and miracles and signs and wonders was over. From here on out, you'll find Jesus speaking only in intentional ways and usually only to his disciples. You'll find Jesus not preaching sermons anymore. No more parables, no more signs, no more wonders, no more miracles. All of that is gone because the end of his prophetic era has come. He had spent 11 chapters of the gospel calling the people to repent, warning them that judgment was coming. And like Jeremiah, some of the people heeded the warning. Some repented. Some, like the Samaritan, believed and they were saved. But the majority of the people, they rejected him. And that rejection happened in a crescendoing sort of way. They rejected him with strong words in John 2, with strong hate in John 5, with strong stones in John 10. And then finally, when you get to John 11, they put together a coalition, hell-bent on a strong hate that would come eventually in that week to Jesus' demise. Jesus didn't retreat from the city in John 11 because he was afraid. Jesus didn't retreat because his public, the public opinion of him had, had waned. Actually, Jesus was becoming more and more popular. That's why they were afraid of him, as we said last week. They were afraid that his growing popularity would cause trouble with them between them and the Romans. Jesus retreated because their rejection of him was finally beyond a point of return. They had rejected him and rejected him and rejected him and to the point to where now it was beyond return. And this is a practical point for you and I to remember. God has been very gracious and very patient to every human being on earth. Every single person is without excuse. And there may be someone here today who God has been reminding you of his truth. He's been calling you to repent. He's been warning you of the judgment that is to come. And like the Israelites, you've been spurning his warning. Well, I want to tell you something. Every time you hear the gospel is an extreme act of God's grace. You are sinful. You do not deserve to be saved. We know that. So when God gives you this beautiful and glorious gospel, it is not only an extreme act of grace for God to give it. It is an extreme act of rebellion to reject it. I'm praying that if you hear this gospel, the Holy Spirit would help you receive it and, and turn from your sin and hear and run to Christ because the Jews did not. And by John 11, their prophetic opportunity was over. 
God gave them over to their hardened heart, just like we see in Romans chapter one. Now, we know that they didn't just reject Jesus. They also rejected John. John was the first prophet of the New Testament era, just like Elijah of the Old Testament. He was the coming Elijah figure who was supposed to prepare the way for Jesus. And they rejected him early. They were sending a delegation to investigate him in John 1. It's the same thing they do to Jesus here in John 11. That delegation was there to investigate John. The delegation John 11 was to kill Jesus, no matter what they're skeptical of God's anointed prophet. Now, later, they're going to arrest John the Baptist. They're ultimately going to kill John the Baptist, which is a typical outcome for the prophet. So when they get Jesus, he's their last shot for repentance. If they don't repent under his ministry, then they're going to have no hope because the grace and mercy of God is over. God has sent them prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament and they rejected and they rejected and they rejected even to the point where Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come in and burn their city to the ground and take Israel away as slaves all the way to the land of Babylon. They come back, they rebuild. They say, we're never gonna do that again. We're never gonna spurn the goodness of God again. And here they are in the New Testament era in AD 30 doing the same thing again, rejecting God. And unlike in the Old Testament where it was the Babylonians that came, soon it's gonna be the Romans who come and burn their city to the ground. Like Israel does time and time again, they're rejecting God through rejecting his anointed prophet. That begins with John the Baptist and then it transfers to Jesus who was anointed. If John's gonna tell the story of Jesus as the final prophet, then Jesus needs to be anointed and he is. He's anointed in two ways. He's anointed by his water baptism in by, by John the Baptist, and he's anointed by the Holy Spirit while he's still at the Jordan River. And we learn about this in several different passages in the, in the New Testament. Luke 4 is a good one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So Jesus is saying that I've been anointed to preach, which is a prophetic role, I've been anointed to serve the poor, which is a prophetic role. I've been anointed to proclaim the release and freedom to the captives. That's a prophetic role. And I've been anointed to recover the sight of the blind. That's a prophetic role. That's something that Elisha does in the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha. So what we see here is that Jesus is being anointed to preach, to proclaim repentance, to warn of judgment, and to do miracles. Those are things that... Elijah and Elisha did in the Old Testament. Those are things that all the prophets did, which is preaching. Jesus is being anointed for the anointed office of prophet. And that's happening even here in the book of John. John is putting that at the very beginning of his book because he's trying to tell us that that is the theme of his book. We know that because John the Baptist admits this in John chapter one, that he saw Jesus anointed as prophet. So right at the very beginning of John's gospel, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon Jesus. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he who upon you, whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself, John, have seen this and have testified that he is the son of God. John is not only telling us that Jesus is the son of God here, he's saying he was anointed as the final prophet. He saw the spirit of God coming down on Jesus, anointing him. So John is very clearly in the beginning of his book saying Jesus is anointed. 
And what office? Because if you're anointed, you're anointed to an office. What office was he anointed to? The office of prophet. That'll become even more clear as we go. The apostles, some of them were standing there when this happened. They admit that they saw this happen too. They admit that they saw Jesus being anointed. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 through 39. It says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him, anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good works and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. That's a prophetic ministry that Jesus had. And we were all witnesses of all the things that he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So Jesus is claiming to be an anointed prophet in Luke 4. John sees it in John 1. He sees it happen. The apostles also see it and report about it later in the book of Acts. And the way that John is organizing his gospel, by putting this up front, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus that's implied in the gospel of John and then the Holy Spirit coming down and anointing him as prophet, we see that John is emphasizing that Jesus is this sort of final prophet that has come to call the people to repent. Now, that's not enough to prove it yet. That's just a very surface level overview. But when you when you start to see how John deals with the Old Testament themes, you're going to actually believe that this is very intentional by John. So far, all I've proved is Jesus has been anointed as prophet. I have not proven yet that John has written his gospel, chapters 1 and 11, to be the story of Jesus as true prophet. Now we're going to do that. And we're going to do that by saying, who was the first prophet? It was Elijah. Elijah was the first prophet, and he was the forerunner to a man named Elisha. There was only two prophets in the Old Testament who performed miracles. That was Elijah and Elisha. They're the only ones. Out of those two, you have Elisha who, is, who gets a double portion. He's the only prophet in all of the Bible who performs as many miracles as he does. He explicitly is anointed with oil for the office of his, uh, of his predecessor. Elisha actually is the only prophet who's anointed with oil in the Bible. Now, we know that the prophets were anointed offices, but he's the only one who's explicitly commanded to be anointed with oil, and he's the only one, the only one of the prophets that we see the Holy Spirit also coming upon him and him having a dual anointing. In the same way that when, when David was anointed, the Spirit fell on him. When Elisha was anointed, the Spirit fell on him. He has a dual anointing, but it doesn't end there. The comparisons do not end there between Jesus and Elisha and John the Baptist and Elijah. For instance, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, says that John, the coming messenger, is going to be the new Elijah. So he is intentionally comparing the coming final prophets with the first two prophets. Malachi is doing that on purpose. He's saying that John the Baptist will be like Elijah and Jesus will be like Elisha. John the Baptist's ministry is going to prepare the way for Jesus just like Elijah's ministry prepared the way for Elisha. Why is Malachi doing that? Because he's showing a bookend to the the ministry of the prophet. Just like David was the first king, Jesus is the last king. Aaron was the first priest. Jesus is the final priest. In the same way, Elijah and Elisha were the first prophets. John the Baptist and Jesus are the final. You get this book-ended view there. We see John compared to Elijah in more ways than that. He's the one who dresses like Elijah with his camel-haired footy pajamas. He's the one who eats the the chocolate-covered crickets just like 
Elijah does. He's the one who who goes to the people of power and infuriates them with the message of God. He's the one who's eventually killed by the people of power. He's the one who his ministry is eclipsed by his successor. Almost everything in John's life, except for his manner of death, but he was he he was killed early, just like Elijah died early. Elijah died with the chariot of fire. John the Baptist died with his head beheaded, but almost every aspect of their ministry, Elijah and John the Baptist are related to one another in such a way that Malachi can say that, that this man, John, will be the coming Elijah. The Pharisees, when they come to John the Baptist in John 1, ask him if he's the Elijah that is to come. John 1 is highlighting that the ministry of Elijah is here, and that the end of the prophets has come, and it will come through Christ. And we know that because not only is John the Baptist related to Elijah, Jesus is related to Elisha in John's gospel. Just like Elisha followed after Elijah, Jesus follows after John the Baptist, and these two men's ministries, Elisha and Jesus, are entirely connected in the gospel of John and they're entirely correlated. Look at this. This this is from a a old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke who compares Jesus to Elijah. And he comes up with an astounding list of things that Jesus and Elijah both did their ministries being intentionally coordinated by God, but also by the author, John, who's writing these things. Listen to this. When it comes to Jesus and Elijah, Waltke says, they are both appointed to be a prophet by a current and active prophet. They are both anointed to serve by their predecessor. They both received the spirit of God on the other side of the Jordan. They both are surrounded by more disciples than their predecessors. They both are itinerant miracle workers. They both give life in a land filled with death. They both cleanse lepers. They both heal the sick. They both defy gravity in water. Elijah causes an ax head to float on the water. Jesus causes himself to float on the water. Do you see the correlations here? Both reverse death by raising young boys. Both restore the sons to their mothers. Both help widows in desperate circumstances. Both provide For the impoverished, Elisha does it by giving oil, multiplied oil to to an impoverished widow. Jesus gives multiplied bread to an impoverished crowd, to a hungry crowd. Both of them feed the hungry. Both of them minister to the Gentiles. Both prepare sinners to meet God. Both sit at the table with sinners in fellowship. Both have a disciple who betrays them for money. Gehazi betrays Elisha. Judas betrays Christ. Both of these disciples of theirs are cursed. Gehazi with lifelong leprosy, Judas with eternal hell as the son of perdition. And both Elisha and Jesus have their tomb producing life. If you remember in the Old Testament, a soldier falls dead on the battlefield and they throw him in the tomb of Elisha and his body strikes the bones of Elisha and he comes back to life. Anyone who falls upon the rock who is Christ will be made new and be made alive through his resurrection. These men's lives are entirely coordinated. There's no coincidence here. There's a symmetry. 
Just as Elijah and Elisha began the prophetic era, Jesus and John will end the prophetic era. So there's no more prophets that are needed. You may have went to a church in the charismatic tradition or Pentecostal tradition that called so-and-so a prophet and so-and-so a this and that, and somebody got a word from the Lord and somebody did this and they're gonna prophesy about that. They can't because that era is over. If John is Elijah and Jesus is so highly coordinated with Elisha, the ministry's over. It's closed. It's been bookended in a perfect way with Jesus being the final and perfect prophet, the one who ends all prophetic ministry. There is no more word from the Lord that's coming because we have the word of the Lord that has come in the 66 books of the Bible. There's no more need for a new prophet to raise up to call the people to repentance. We've got the words of God that have called us to repentance. That's why the gospel is the power of God for repentance. Jesus ends the ministry of the prophet. Both both John and Elijah are forerunners. Both have Jesus and Elisha, both are anointed twice. They're only prophets that, were, that ever happened to. Both have a life-given death. I mean, all of this is intentional. If John wanted to show Jesus as the final prophet who ends all prophets, I can't imagine a better way than the way that he did it. And, and if that were not enough, Jesus is being correlated with Elisha in, in an astounding way in the Gospel of John that I think that, that once you see it, you'll be blown away by. Because not only is Jesus and Elisha and John and Elijah, not only are they compared in a general way, the first five miracles of Jesus that we're going to look at today, the first five miracles that John records in his gospel are the first five miracles of Elisha in the Old Testament. What I mean is when Jesus does his first miracle, it was the first miracle that Elisha did in the Old Testament. There's a correlation there. Let me explain. Elisha's first miracle is when the Red Sea, or sorry, when the when the Jordan River was parted and when the Spirit of God fell on him in 2 Kings 2.14. Now, what is the first miracle of Jesus? What's the first miraculous thing that happens in the life of Jesus? When the waters of the Jordan, same river, are parted, same verb, Jesus goes down in baptism, and then what happens? The Spirit of God descends on him. So the first miracle of Elisha and the first miracle of Jesus are basically the same kind of miracle. Why would the author of John do that? Well, obviously because it happened, but also because he's wanting us to remember that Jesus is the better Elisha. He's saying that this is not a coincidence. I'm describing all of the things that Jesus did in his life to show you that Jesus intentionally came to, to be the final prophet. And if he's going to be the final prophet, he would he would sort of channel the ministry of Elisha. That's the first miracle. What's the second miracle? The second miracle of Elisha is recorded in 2 Kings 18 through 22, where Elisha is called. He's called to this place where there's this stagnant water source, and he tells them to go grab a bowl of water and to draw it out, and it will be purified. And when they drink it, it will be to the blessing of the crowd. That's the exact same thing that happens to Jesus in his second miracle. He is called to this place that runs out of wine. He takes a stagnant water source, these six empty pots. He tells the the waitress or the waiter to go and dip out of it with a bowl, just like Elijah told them. 
And then he gives it to the head waiter who tasted and said, this is the best wine I've ever had. And then the party continues and everyone is blessed. Jesus is doing the same thing Elijah did in his second miracle and Jesus' second miracle. He's telling them to draw out water, which now he's made into wine because he's better than Elijah or Elisha. He doesn't just purify the water. He makes it wine. He's the new covenant king who does things better than Elisha. It's the same miracle, though. The third miracle is recorded uh, of Elisha is recorded in 2 Kings 23 through 25. He leaves the city, the leading city, the city of prominence, and then he goes out to the mocking and the jeering of these young men who basically call him a bald head. They laugh at him and, you know, Elisha, they didn't have just for men in those days, apparently. So Elisha gets angry that they're mocking him. And he turns with a sort of focused fury and he calls down curses upon them. And they're attacked by two hungry bears. They're mauled to death. Now we look at that and we say, how in the world is that correlated to Jesus's third miracle? Well, Jesus comes into a leading city. He is mocked and jeered, not by uneducated boys, but by educated Pharisees. Jesus responds with, with this penetrating fury that we're not, we're even a little uncomfortable when we think about Jesus getting a whip, chasing people out of the temple, overturning tables. He responds with the same kind of focused fury that Elisha does. And then what does he do? He calls down curses upon them so that not only bears are going to come and rip the people apart, the Romans are going to come and they're going to burn the city to the ground, kill probably nearly a million Jews, and then they're going to export the rest of them back to the city of Rome. Jesus's curse accomplishes more fury than Elisha's does. We might think that Elisha's pretty angry when he, when he curses them and they get eaten by bears. Jesus curses Jerusalem and they get devoured by the Romans, all of them, not just a handful of boys, the whole city. Jesus's miracle is accomplishing more because he's more powerful. He's better. He's the final and greatest prophet. He is God. Fourth miracle. Now that we've seen the first three have been correlated, the fourth miracle, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, he ministers to a downcast woman, a woman who's an outcast in her society, where the community has rejected her and she's in danger of starving to death. So she, you know, she's trying to feed her son. She's, she's rejected. And Elisha comes in and he tells her to go to all your neighbors, get as many pots as you can, bring them back. You're going to pour out of this pot from the only pot of oil you have left, you're going to pour it and it's going to fill up all of these pots full of oil. Then you're going to go and sell it and you're going to have enough money to live. So Elisha provides this woman with a never ending supply of oil to rescue her in her rejection, depravity, or not depravity, um, uh, destitution. Jesus in John chapter four, he goes to the Samaritan woman who's also rejected by her community. And he offers her living water. And what does he do? Just like Elisha sent her out into the community to go get, to go get pots to come back so that that oil, the never-ending oil could be poured into that. She is told to go to the community and to bring them back. They're the pots. They're the pots that Jesus is going to pour living water into. And when they get back, they all get saved. So Elisha tells this woman to go get all these pots so that you can have oil so that you can sell it so that you can be spared. Jesus tells her to go get the town. They come back and Jesus fills all of them with living water. One gives never ending oil. One gives never ending eternal life. 
They're the same miracle, but Jesus is clearly better because he's showcasing that the greatest prophet that Old Testament Israel had was Elisha. Many people give Elijah more credit than Elisha did more miracles, healed more people, raised more people from the dead than anyone else, but even he doesn't compare to Jesus. Jesus' ministry is better and greater, and it correlates perfectly. John is tracking with Elisha by saying that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. His miracle is better. Every miracle is correlated. That's just the first four. John is doing this intentionally in his gospel, one by one by one. The next miracle, let's go one more. The next miracle of Elisha is in 2 Kings 4, 8 through 17, where he heals an influential woman um, or her son. She's an influential Shunammite. She's a powerful woman in her community. And Elisha has this relationship with her. And then he and his, his disciple Gehazi, they leave. And then her son falls ill. So she, she goes to Elisha and she says, please come back and heal my son. She pleads with him until he finally says, fine, I'll go. He goes, he lays prostrate on this boy's body. He prays over him and then the boy is healed. The boy is resurrected. What, is, what happens to Jesus in his fifth miracle? He's traveling. An influential nobleman from the city comes to him and pleads with him, says, my boy is sick, just like the Shunammite woman. And then Jesus, who is greater than Elisha, doesn't have to travel back to the man's home. Jesus says, I've healed him. Now go. <laughs> Do you see what's happening here? Elisha heals a boy as his fifth miracle after the mother comes and pleads with him. Jesus heals a boy after the father comes and pleads with him. But Jesus doesn't have to go. Jesus is like Yahweh in the fact that he can speak healing from a distance and it happens. Elisha's just a man. Elisha's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, but he's still just a man. Jesus is the God-man who heals, um, who heals the nobleman's son from a distance. All of this is John showing us that Jesus is the greater, more perfect Elisha. And he's doing it one by one by one. All of Jesus's miracles in the Gospel of John are are greater miracles than their corresponding counterpart in the life of Elisha. And they all happen in chronological order. There is no way that this could possibly be a coincidence. Both men heal a sick person by a pool. Both men multiply loaves of bread. Both men float on something on water. Both men are prophetic preachers. Both men call for repentance. Both men warned about the coming judgment. And both men brought life out of the grave. There is no way that John is doing this accidentally. There's no way that John has, has the Elijah, John the Baptist, preceding Jesus and then telling the story of Jesus as the new and better Elijah. There's no way that's accidental if John's not intentionally trying to say that Jesus is the final and greatest prophet. All of this is working together to tell the story that Jesus is the final and greatest prophet. I was talking to a friend of mine out West. He lives in Texas. And I was telling him some of these details. And he says, wow, it seems like that's not coincidental. And indeed, he's right. That is how John arranged his book. The first 11 chapters are about Jesus coming to call the people to repentance, to warn them of the judgment to come. His miracles are perfectly coordinated with the Old Testament prophet Elisha. And in the end, Jesus shows that he's the final, greatest, and best prophet. He's our true prophet. He's our true anointed prophet.
which is where we get to our passage today in John 11. After all that preaching and all those healings, all those miracles, all that warning, the people finally rejected him for the last time. Just like all the prophets were rejected, Jesus is rejected and Jesus now will retreat, abandoning Judah, just like God abandoned Israel in the Old Testament. Verse 54 says of John chapter 11, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. The prophetic ministry of Jesus is over in John 11. He abandons the Jewish people. After a thousand years since David and 830 years since the first prophet was sent, the ministry of the prophets is now over when Jesus is no longer willing to continue with Judah. He leaves Judah and he goes back to Ephraim, which that is highly significant detail in the narrative. It has massive covenantal significance. Think about it. Jesus has just left dead Judah, the spiritually dead Judah, the Judah that hates God, the Judah that rejects Jesus. Jesus has just left that dead nation, the nation that was filled with two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And then he goes to Ephraim. Did you know in the Old Testament that, the, that Ephraim was the covenantal name for Israel? The 10 tribes. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus leaves dead Judah and he goes to the city named after dead Israel. He's showing that all 12 tribes now are dead. Israel, the 10 tribes died when Nineveh, or when the Assyrians came in and destroyed them and, and burned their cities to the ground. And that ended in the Old Testament. The 10 tribes were lost. All 10 tribes gone in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, there's only two tribes left, Judah and Benjamin. Jesus goes to them. He calls them to repentance and they reject him and he abandons them. So now he, they're all dead. So why does he go to Ephraim? The place that was named after Old Testament Israel. Why does he go there? Because with all 12 tribes being dead, spiritually speaking, with Jesus abandoning Judah and Benjamin, Jesus is going now to establish a brand new nation. He's going to Ephraim, the name given to the nation of Israel to start a new Israel. He's taken his 12 disciples with him as the, as the new foundation for a new 12 tribes. You remember the nation was, was began by Jacob who had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Jesus as the true and greater Jacob is going back to the place called Israel, Ephraim with his 12 disciples to begin a new nation. And if you think about it, what does a new nation need? A new nation needs a king. Jesus spent 11 chapters in the gospel of John calling the people to repent. Some did, some were saved. Some became a part of his nation. Some became citizens in his kingdom. The majority of the nation, though, rejected him. So Jesus retreats and he goes to the city of Ephraim with his 12 disciples and he begins a new nation. And he comes into the city of Jerusalem, his final time in John chapter 12. And he doesn't come in anymore as prophet. He doesn't come in preaching. He doesn't come in doing miracles. He comes in as king. 
if you remember, the way that the gospel of John is organized, I'm telling you, is telling the story of prophet, priest, and king. John 1 through 11 is telling you about the prophet. John 12, he's anointed again. We remember he, that there's only three anointed offices. He's already anointed by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit to be the prophet. He's anointed by Mary in John chapter 12 to be the king. And then after he's anointed king, he rides into the city on a donkey, just like Solomon. He rides into the city on a donkey to the cheers of the people, and they say, long live the king, just like Solomon. So Jesus is compared to the second prophet, Elisha. He's compared to the second king, Solomon. He foreshadows that he's going to be lifted up on a cross in John chapter 12. That's his throne. That's the cross. He even says in John chapter 12 that he's going to draw all people to himself who are going to be citizens of his kingdom, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's John 12. That's kingly language. You don't find anything in John 12 with Jesus as the prophet. You find Jesus being king. And when they reject him in John 12, he leaves again, just like he did in John 11. He leaves with his 12 disciples. He retreats again because now They've rejected him as king. They rejected him as prophet in John 11. They reject him as king in John 12 and his triumphal entry when they don't bow down and submit themselves under his rule. He retreats again with his 12 disciples to the upper room. And then the language shifts to the fact that he is their priest. John 13, in the very beginning of the passage, Jesus is overseeing the Passover meal like a priest. And then he gets down from the table and he washes his disciples' feet just like a priest. And you're saying, well, you know, that's Jesus being a servant leader. That's Jesus setting an example for the church. That has nothing to do with high priesthood. Oh, yes, it does. The word there for wash is a word that is only used about 17 times in the Old Testament. Same word in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And almost every time that that word is used, it has to do with high priestly washing. Jesus gets down from his table and he washes the disciples' feet, just like Aaron got down and washed his son's feet. It is striking. Look at what it says in Exodus 30, 18 through 21. After the priests have been anointed with oil, this is what it says. You shall also make a laver of bronze with his base of bronze for washing and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from that. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke, a sacrifice of fire to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. And it's a perpetual perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and for his descendants throughout their generations. Jesus as the final Aaron, the final priest gets down from his Passover table and he washes his disciples' feet just like Aaron was commanded to wash his son's feet. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet to purify them for priesthood. Remember in the New Testament, it says that every single Christian has been washed. Every single Christian has been made a priest. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Jesus washes his disciples and he commands his disciples to wash each other's feet because this has priestly significance. Jesus is creating a new priesthood under him. He also, in in that same passage, he says, you know, because I've done this, some of you are clean. 
and yet Judas is unclean. Only a priest can call someone clean or unclean. Do you see how the verbs are in John 13 are entirely priestly verbs, whereas in John 12, that's not the case because he's talking about Jesus as king. In John 1 through 11, that's not the case. He's talking about Jesus as prophet. The words change in John 13 because now he's talking about Jesus as the final priest. After he washes their feet, he pronounces some of them clean and some of them unclean. There's other examples. He provide, he presides over the Passover meal as priest. He gives them a new commandment in John 13, 34 as priest. He comforts them like a priest would comfort his people. John 14, 1 through 6, he teaches them how to live new covenant lives in chapters 14 through 16. And in the climax of this section, he prays a high priestly prayer in John 17. After he prays this high priestly prayer, he leaves and he goes to a garden, just like the high priest and the time where he would be going into the holiest place of the temple, which was decorated like a garden to mediate a new covenant for the people. The Old Testament priest would go to a, a garden temple. Now Jesus is going to the garden to be arrested so that he can mediate this new covenant with God's people. All of this is, is John being very intentional. He's saying that in the first 11 chapters, I've showed you how the people rejected him as true prophet. I'm showing you how the people rejected him as true king. And then in John 18, when he's arrested in the garden, he's showing us how Jesus is rejected as true priest. Which leads to the crucifixion. The crucifixion can seem like this great moment of defeat. But it's the crucifixion where God installs Jesus as true prophet, priest, and king for his church. You see, what we would be tempted to think is that the Jews rejected him as prophet, they rejected him as king, they rejected him as priest, and then he dies and it's all over. But all of that was a part of the plan of God. Because when Jesus rises from the dead in victory, he's not the priest of Judah He's not the king of Judah. He's not the prophet of Judah. God gives him a new kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. He makes him king over that kingdom, priest over that kingdom, prophet over that kingdom, so that you and I today are now the beneficiaries of his threefold high priestly, high kingly, high prophet office. You see, all of this is important. And the reason why I've went into all of these details is to show you that John is very carefully and very intentionally telling the story of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. But I want you to see what that means for you. I want you to see that, that what that means for you as people who serve this great Messiah. He's our prophet. He, we've been brought into relationship with him by the spirit of God descending on us just like it descended on him. We've been anointed by the spirit just like he was anointed by the spirit because he's true prophet. He sent his spirit to preach the gospel to us. He sent his spirit to resurrect us to new life so that we could repent from our sin and avoid the wrath that is to come and be brought under his leadership of truth. He's our true prophet who anoints us to serve him. He's our true priest who anointed us in baptism and who cleansed us with his blood and who offered himself up as a sacrifice to us on the cross. He's our true priest that, that dealt with our sin by becoming sin for us, who dealt with the curse that we had by becoming a curse for us. He's the one who mediated a new covenant between us and God. He's the one who served us on the cross as high priest. 
offering himself up as the final and perfect sacrifice. And he's our king because he brought you and I into citizenship in his kingdom. He put us on a mission. He made us his ambassadors. He called us to go to the nations. He put his enemies under our feet. He's told us to put his banner on every single square inch of this earth. He's called us to extend his dominion. He's called us to chase down the gates of hell until they fall at our feet. He's called us to make disciples of all the nations. And we're gonna do that work until the very end has come. John tells his gospel as the story of the prophet, the priest, and the king who Israel rejected, but who God through Christ's work on the cross has accepted us to be his slaves. He's now our prophet. He's now our king. He's now our priest, and we gain everything from him. If Jesus is not your prophet, you don't repent. If Jesus is not your high priest, you're never cleansed. If Jesus is not your king, then you're not a citizen. All these things, are they matter for you. John organizes this gospel in such a way to highlight the fact that these things are for you. You and I would have been just like the people of Israel who rejected Jesus. You and I would have been just like the people of Judah who hardened our hearts against his priesthood and his kingship and his prophetic office. We would have done all of that. But God, by his unimaginable grace, has chosen to save you and make you the beneficiary of all that Christ has done. I pray that as we close, that you would see how Christ has served you. He served you as prophet, he served you as priest, and he served you as king. And you now gain all these great gifts because our great God has given us a great Messiah. I pray that you would worship him. I pray that you'd thank him. And I pray that you would see these things in a new way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the gospel of John is so deep and so rich that we can see so many wonderful truths being found in its pages. Lord, I pray today that we would see not just how John organized his gospel, but we would not only see the fact that the Jews have rejected him as prophet, priest, and king, but Lord, we would, I pray that what we would see is that we would be, that we would worship him as prophet, priest, and king. Because of his crucifixion on the cross, because of his resurrection from the grave, because of his ascension to the right hand of God, Lord, I pray that we would see his mediatorial work in these three ways. I pray that we would see that he's the one who brings us truth like a good prophet. He's the one who brings us healing like a true priest. And he's the one who brings us belonging and citizenship as a true king. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's struggling with truth. I pray they would see Jesus as their true prophet. For anyone here today who's struggling with healing, for anyone here today who's struggling with pain, for anyone here today who's struggling with their sin and their guilt and their shame, Lord, I pray they would see Jesus as true priest. And Lord, anyone here today who's struggling with not knowing what to do as a Christian, not knowing where to fit in as a Christian, not knowing where to serve, not knowing where to, where to minister, not knowing how to live as a member of this great kingdom, that they would see Jesus as their true king. And Lord, I pray that all of us, as we look to him in that threefold office, that we would find our place in his kingdom and we would serve him well. In Christ's name, amen.